So Oliver, who are we canceling today? The cancel culture queers. Hey, isn't that us? Might be. Oh no. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic ground cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Caitlin, what um, what media have you been consuming lately? <laughs> I am in complete Overwatch 2 mode. Um, the game actually launches today, the day we're recording, so I'm very excited. Just a couple more hours to go. And, uh, you know, other than that, a little rings of power. And, but yeah, my brain is just like, must do Overwatch, which is a very 2016 thing for it to be doing. What What is, I know, I'm familiar with Overwatch. What is yeah. Rings of Power? That is the Amazon Lord of the Rings show. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, that yeah. tracks. Yeah. I've been being nerdy and listening to podcasts. Oh my god, podcasters <laughs> listening to podcasts? What, what is this world coming to? What? Uh, my new favorite one is Normal Gossip, which is just where... Oh yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's just like a lot of like low stakes drama and gossip. Oh my um, god. Which is fucking delightful. Low stakes for a change? That must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So what do we have for a show today? Yeah, so for today's show, we have a really exciting episode where we're going to sit down and talk to Meredith Toulousen, who is an award-winning writer and journalist. Uh, she's author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Fairest, which is a Lambda Literary Award finalist. Um, and her work has appeared or is forthcoming in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, The Nation, Wired, Self, Guernica... Boston Review, Epoch, The Rumpus, Grand, and Catapult. Uh, and she's also the founding executive editor for them, um, where she still works as a contributing editor. And we are going to have a really interesting conversation about cancel culture. Um, thank you for joining us today, Meredith. Oh, it's my pleasure. How, how have you been surviving the pandemic? What have you been doing to take care of yourself? Oh, what have I been doing to take care of myself? I mean, I live, we moved fortuitously to the Catskills in the summer of 2019. So that's been very good for my overall mental health pandemic or otherwise. Um, so I take a lot of long walks and, you know, like look out into the forest and think I've been painting more recently, which has been really nice. And and uh, I do this very obscure body work method called Feldenkrais, which is a holdover from my dance days. Um, so I also do that, which entails the biggest thing that is popular from Feldenkrais is the body scan, where you just lie down and, you know, like scan your whole body. It's kind of, um, it's become incorporated into a lot of mindfulness meditation type routines. And so, um, so that's been really helpful for me in terms of just sort of keeping myself grounded in this difficult time. Well, I think that a number of people listening to our podcast need to be thinking about how to get in their body and connect with their body and mindfulness. I know that I do. That's a thing that I'm always working on. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and it's so good to see you. It's been a little bit too long, I think. I know. I know. It's terrible how I always just, I grew up in a very small town. Mm -hmm. And so I think for the rest of my life, I'm just always going to be like, my head is just always going to explode over how big the U.S. is and how far everybody is and how I know so many people and I can't see all of them, uh, regardless of how much I adore them. And that's just a reality I unfortunately have to have to live with. Um, coming from a town where I saw everyone 
usually once a week at least. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So Oliver, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Meredith gave me one of my first big breaks. I wouldn't say my very first big break, but definitely an important one uh, when we were together back at them. Oh, nice. That is true. That is true. Do you remember that piece that we wrote about the YouTube shooter? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that one stays with me forever. Yeah. And, you know, like we, we worked on a bunch of pieces together, you know, like that was a really important experience for me, the experience of editing other trans writers <laughs> and I miss it. Like I, I just wish I was five people, <laughs> yeah. but unfortunately I am <laughs> me. So, <laughs> so the reason that I wanted to have you on the show, Meredith, is you were one of the first people who kind of challenged my, when I was a little baby queer, um little baby trans and had my I, I feel like I was a little little bit of a cancel culture queer in some ways you know I think that um <laughs> that's why we call you cancel daddy I, I am the cancel daddy um but you know I think that at the time I was doing some community organizing and when you're doing that there are a lot of questions and a lot of people who are saying oh do this this person's unsafe that and the other um, or like so-and-so so said such and such. And you were really the first person to challenge some of the ideas, kind of the um, popular idea that like, oh, we have to have these safe spaces where if people have said the harmful things or, you know, done harmful things, they can't be there. Um, and so I'm wondering like how you came, like how, what your journey and understanding of these things have been and kind of how you came to be kind of situated where you are now with your like outlook. Oh, um, that's a very complicated question. This question of, you know, of my relationship to negotiating around safe spaces. You know, I think the first thing is that I grew up in a dictatorship Right. And yeah, I grew up in the Philippines during the Marcus dictatorship, a time that was really fractious. And I was very aware of how large groups of people can mobilize in order to concentrate power on an individual. Um, and that power can be wielded that one has to be really careful with power. And so I think I've always been the type of person who is very hesitant to just unequivocally reject or remove people from groups without opportunities, right? Like without a certain type of deliberation, without a certain type of attempt to understand, just because of the fact that I was so exposed just to people being jailed and being murdered for countering the narratives of people in power, right? And that history still, you know, like is very much present in the Philippines with the extrajudicial killings, um, during the Duterte administration. Um, and now the dictator's son is now president of the Philippines and has been attempting to revise that history and trying to um, remove accounts of the dictatorship from school textbooks, right? And I think for me, that has been really formative. It's been really formative that, you know, like as soon as I found myself in group situations in which people were saying, you know, like this person has done X. And so therefore, you know, like we have to like unequivocally remove this person. I just really intuitively, really viscerally, it felt so much like the way that um, people back home behave when they're in support of, you know, mm. whatever the regime happens to be during that particular period. That's really, 
interesting because I think that a lot of times this idea of like removing, like a lot of people in American culture being like so-and-so needs to be removed comes from a place of like trauma and reactionary. Whereas like this, yours all your kind of perspective seems to also come from that to some extent but from a very very different perspective yeah of course you know the the, the contexts are really different right mm-hmm. but i think there's this way in which the trauma response is in at least for me you know the way that i've seen it operate in certain spaces it's almost as if the response that comes out, obviously, of, you know, like really understandable pain and trauma is one that also is very difficult for people to recognize as the sort of not obviously like in, um, not in nature, right? Like in terms of the sort of conscious wielding of power, but in, ter- in terms of method, right? like has resonances with the methods of people in power. You know, like I find myself in positions where I try to find solutions that in some way recognize and attempt to account to account for and keep people safe, but also at the same time try not to present the other person as unrecoverable or irredeemable, right? Um, And I've been in those situations. It's funny because I'm going to be giving a talk for the first time at Cornell, which I went to grad school at Cornell um, next week. But in 2014, I was involved in a really difficult situation there where um, I was living in a graduate school co-op and somebody in my co-op was harassing me and saying really transphobic things. And I, at a certain point, you know, just sort of snapped and just had a really difficult time imagining this person being in my space and having like the literal ability to just open my door and also, you know, was letting in strangers into the house on a regular basis. But my, you know, like my impulse at that point was to say, look, like I feel like I should be able as a trans person to not live with somebody transphobic, right? But at the same time, like I also wouldn't want a situation in which this person wouldn't have any opportunity or recourse, right, you know, to somehow think about, you know, their actions. And so what I proposed was for the person to live away from the co-op temporarily while, you know, we're in mediation and working things out. Um, And it's really interesting how polarized, right, like the environment, both at Cornell and in many, you know, like in many situations in America, right, that was unreasonable to everyone. Very quickly, the situation turned polarized, right? So Mm. it very quickly became, oh, no, like you're the one who has to move out, right? And then, you know, there was a consequent oppositional group of friends and trans folks and supporters who were just like, no, like she, you know, like she needs to stay, this person has to leave, right? Mm -hmm. And watching that unfold, you know, just made me really aware of how people, this, this impulse to want things to be um, clear cut and want there to be rules and want there to be like actions that we can just do really quickly really promotes this sort of like super binary, like one or the other type of thinking. And I think, you know, like I've seen the consequences of that firsthand. And so my tendency has always been, you know, to simultaneously sort of like handle this, my safety and the safety of people around me you know, while at the same time, like finding ways to actually to address the situation with the person who is doing harm, right? Yeah, definitely. 
I really appreciate you talking about that and also challenging me those several years ago, because I think you were the first person who like I respected who was like, hey, maybe think about this a little bit more. Um, And so it, it has really like over several years, like my viewpoints on these things have changed. Um, you know, when, in, in addition to like some of the the thinking I've done and like read through like Adrian Marie Brown's uh, book, like We Will Not Cancel Us, which is about um, cancel culture and the abolitionist movement um, and kind of pushing back on some of these ideas. I think one thing that's changed a lot for me is the boundaries. Like I used to have really, really bad boundaries, mm. um, which meant that like I was super people pleasy. I struggled with direct communication and that meant that like people who didn't mean or intend to hurt me did because they couldn't read my mind. And also it was really hard to like disagree with people in a way that didn't like activate me and like have like, di- and so like hold space in that same way. I'm wondering if you, like what role for you, the way that you think about boundaries or expressing yourself or direct communication um, plays into kind of your outlook on some of this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's hard, right? Like all, like even now as we're talking, you know, like I find myself just really uh, struggling to find, you know, kind of like a generalizable answer. Right. You know, because as soon as we talk about like asserting boundaries in particular types of interactions. We're also on the opposite end, like trying not to, you know, like not to engage in, you know, or like not move towards the direction of victim blaming, right? Like when the interaction turns out to be toxic in some way. And I think that it's really important, you know, to simultaneously hold, right, that regardless of, you know, of how you behave, you know, like there are particular types of actions that are, you know, unequivocally wrong, right? Mm -hmm. While at the same time saying that there are particular behaviors or actions on your part that can, you know, like without great stress to you, allow you to be able to, you know, like to be able to potentially prevent um, some of, you know, like, especially when it's a situation where it's a misunderstanding or where Mm -hmm. like a person isn't intending to hurt you, but ends up hurting you. Um, And certainly I as a person struggle with this too, because you know, like I have the very weird background of coming from a hyper-passive communicator culture mm. and then subsequently like being educated in Ivy League schools that are hyper-active communication while at the same time, you know, being perceived completely differently depending on the context that I'm in as sometimes white passing, sometimes cis passing. Um, Filipino trans woman, right? And so I'm in a lot of those situations where people would have expected me to communicate more actively because they have expectations of me not knowing that my brain classifies certain situations as like Filipino passive communicator situations and other situations as Mm. American active communicator situations, right? And I think at least for me, you know, like certainly, you know, like certainly exerting boundaries is always a good idea, but also, and especially in institutional settings, right? Mm. Um, I also don't think that it should be our individual responsibilities to, you know, create um, institutional situations that are genuinely and truly safe for um, trans people, BIPOC people, and other minorities, right? Um, one of the things that I encounter over and over again is the language of non-discrimination without the requisite actions mm-hmm. of non-discrimination, right? Absolutely. You know, that happens a lot. And it also happens a lot that like people are very good about promoting 
whatever, you know, like diversity initiatives that they have. They're very, you know, like these days, they're often even very good at, you know, like recruiting trans folks and minorities, but they still are so often completely unprepared to actually, you know, like deal with us and deal with our daily lives and what we go through on a regular basis. And also, you know, like handle the situation responsibly when something does happen, right? That makes mm-hmm. that makes people unsafe. You know, like I've seen it so many times that the response is essentially denial, right? You know, where it's sort of like, well, no, like that's not really what you're feeling because we've created you know, like our <laughs> self-congratulatory, like wonderful space. So, you know, like this person who said or did this thing to you, well, you're just perceiving it incorrectly, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like you're making too much of a big deal out of it. Um, and I've seen that, unfortunately, over and over again in a bunch of different situations, mm-hmm. like whether educational, whether, you know, in corporate settings, not just to me personally, but in terms of as an underrepresented minority many times over, you know, I've had many, many conversations and the pattern is very familiar to me. Um, So I think the the thing that got me to open my eyes on a lot of this stuff is just seeing so many trans people get run offline mm -hmm. under continuously weird circumstances um, thanks to dogpiling and insults and everything. I don't want to rehash everything, but um, our listeners were very familiar. We did a show that was completely about, um, uh, about Isabel fall and, you know, her, her experience after publishing a short story that a lot of people didn't take a lot of time to think about. Is this the helicopter story? Remind yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. it is the helicopter story. But you see it countless other times, you know, with other trans people where, you know, I, I can name five to ten trans women alone who have just been completely driven offline um, because of harassment campaigns. And it's just, I see it because I'm trans and it's not just trans people. It happens to all kinds of marginalized people, but that so often gets lost in like this larger cultural conversation that the media tries to have about cancel culture. And I just wanted to get sort of your perspective, you know, coming from your background um, for how you see those dynamics playing out. I mean, with online pileups, right? I've seen a number of things happen, right? Like one of the things that happens often, right, is people not necessarily 100% acknowledging their internal biases around the behavior and the ways in which it's often the case that, you know, like certainly one of the things that I've seen is that trans people can often have even higher expectations of other trans people mm-hmm. than they have of cis people. And one of mm-hmm. the things that I've talked about and tweeted about is just the fact that like, yes, on the one hand, there is a certain kind of like visceral impulse to expect more of other trans people than of cis people. But at the same time, when you do that and when you then punish trans people and not cis people, then you're still contributing to a cis-centric world, right? So that's one thing that I've noticed um, happen. I've also seen situations where, you know, like where people can be particularly combative towards minorities other than themselves, right? Like I remember this whole entire thing with Brandon Taylor, the queer Black author, who I believe he quote tweeted something sarcastic about, I can't remember the the person's name, about disabled author talking about how the expectation to read a lot for writers is ableist. You know, and people were like, you know, like this is taken out of context, et cetera, et cetera. And there, you know, like there was a really big sort of like Twitter pylon. And it's really hard to not notice a lot of the time that 
you know, I and and certainly in that case, right? Like hundreds of people were retweeting this thing and saying sarcastic things about it. Um, but it ended up being a queer black author who became the sort of, you know, who who became the focus of particular types of vitriol. And I think, you know, I've been relatively quiet on social media in part because I don't have a full-time media job right now. So it's it's not um, my job anymore um, to monitor Twitter. But I am sort of right now of the opinion that a lot of these polarizing debates, they just sort of miss the substance of what is really being talked about, right? You know, and I feel like, you know, like, what are we actually doing? How are we contributing to a better world by preventing people from saying what they think and actually engaging in meaningful, um, helpful conversations about these difficult and and complicated issues, right? And I think, you know, it's almost as if we are having a really difficult time you know, sort of like matching the consequence with the fault, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything becomes the sort of big thing that we have to fight against rather than certain situations, you know, like warranting a particular type of response in other situations. Yeah. And this idea of like perfection, right? And that no one's problematic and no one's messy is just ridiculous. Like we all have our things that we haven't worked through or thought through or like, you know, um, and so this idea that we hold, especially marginalized people to this like absurd standard of perfection, it just like, it's, it's nonsense. You know, I think the Twitter algorithm encourages us to like yell at each other and it it makes everyone activated and then everyone's yelling at each other. But like, yeah, it's really it's really bleak. (laughs) Right. And it's also hard. I mean, one of the really hard things, too, I think, is that, you know, is that it's very hard for people to hold the simultaneous realities that people can, you know, they be a booker. Uh, award finalist and a prominent author, but also have histories of trauma, be Black and queer in all of the ways that, you know, like that affects your life, right? And similarly, you know, like that's something that I definitely identify with and experience, right? Like on the one hand, yes, many, you know, people who are in the public eye in particular ways or people who have careers as writers, such as myself, right? Like, you know, we we are in very much a privileged position while also like simultaneously, we sometimes have bad moods. We don't always say the right thing. We sometimes, you know, like act out of impulses that are not ideal because, mm-hmm. you know, because we're human, right? You know, but I think there's this way that social media... Another thing that happens is social media, you know, like quantifies power in these very specific ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like it has the markers of power around, you know, like things like check marks and follower counts, you know, like et cetera, et cetera. So there's this very weird way that, that as you're interacting with people, like you're also being reminded of their relative power And it sort of flattens people, right? Like Mm. Elon Musk, you know, is a hyper billionaire who has incredible power outside of any kind of, you know, like any kind of social media sphere. But when you're looking at his account and comparing it with some other person who has like a big social following, it's almost as if you're removing like their actual power in the real world and only accounting for their social media reach, right? And I think, you know, like those are some of the online effects that I find myself sort of like getting really tired of. And so I mostly go on Twitter to be a smart Alec these days, (laughs) um, you know, and talk about obscure literary topics that hopefully nobody 
will get mad at me for. Although people did get mad at me recently for complaining about people pitching me on my personal email address. Oh dear. Um, because I was cranky about it. And they were just like, don't you remember when you were a freelancer and you were trying to get your byline? You know, <laughs> is, isn't that something that you would have done? And I was just like, honestly, no. But I, don't, I, don't I think take your point. Another, another version of me might have done it. Sure. But I'm in a bad mood. Um. <laughs> I have a question here, actually. What advice would you give to people who see these dog piles happening, I guess you could say, online. I think we're incentivized to take part in whoever is the main character on Twitter these days. Like, I think Twitter itself is designed to be used that way. But I was just wondering, like, if you had any advice for our listeners on when they see these situations developing, how they can be mindful of their own reactions to things. Or if you had any sort of any insight into that? Well, I mean, first of all, it's important to note that it makes Twitter profit. You know, like your your anger is a moneymaker for Twitter, which is a big corporation. Um, for me, whenever I see these things happening, I try to think about the position of somebody who whose voice isn't heard, right? You know, like who may experience various sorts of pain related to the issues involved, right? And so there's this way that participating in a communal activity that holds some person accountable, right? In some way relieves one of that pain but I think it's really, really important to try to figure out like how much of it is the action that the person actually took um, and the words that the person actually used and how much of it is that person being a symbol and being a representative mm -hmm. and, and an accessible representative for whatever it is that you're experiencing, right? That's been really important for me in terms of thinking through a lot of these issues, you know, because, I mean, I talk about this whole Brandon Taylor incident, but, you know, like I'm, I'm albino, I am legally blind. So I am also like implicated in this entire equation. And I didn't agree with Brandon that he should have been that cavalier about, you know, like the way that the profession of writing is ableist. Um, but it was not the type of action that, you know, that at least I felt warranted kind of demonizing someone. And then also, I think it's important to do your research. That's what I do, you know, like when I find myself angry about something, I look at somebody's pattern of behavior. I, mm -hmm. you know, like I try to understand whether what they're saying is the sort of one-off comment or whether it's part of a larger pattern. I mean, I think the hard part is that so many of these systems are built in such a way that the default behavior is so much easier, <laughs> you know, to perform than you know, like then the non-default behavior. What do you mean by that? You know, like when you see something that's really terrible, that's getting retweeted all over the place, mm -hmm. you know, it's just so much easier to retweet it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like see some, and also like if there's like a really cool snippet, right? Like it's so much easier mm -hmm. to just repeat it, retweet it and say something crass than to actually look behind the issue, right? And I think, you know, just sort of like my years as an editor has helped in terms of, you know, like my impulse is always like, okay, like what's going on here? Another incident that is coming to mind right now is uh, the Jumi Bello situation. Jumi Bello is a Black author 
who had a novel that was about to come out last summer. Um, and then it came out that she had plagiarized significant parts of the novel, right? <sighs> and so the novel was pulled. Mm -hmm. And then she wrote an article for LitHub about the mental struggles that she was going through and what were the factors that ended up you know, resulting in her plagiarizing this novel. Mm -hmm. And then in the context of this article, right, there was one paragraph um, that turns out to have also been plagiarized, right? So then it was very easy for a lot of people, you know, like in literary Twitter to essentially, you know, like make a ton of sarcastic comments and make fun of the author, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that like for me, you know, like when I saw this, one of the things that I thought to myself was, okay, you know, like what are the extenuating factors around here? Mm -hmm. Why is this person keep doing this, right? But that also this person has just had, you know, like her dream entirely dashed. It was also like a part of the article that was just like a background. It was basically like the definition of plagiarism in the article mm -hmm. while the rest of the article was was original, right? Mm -hmm. So there was also this part of me that was just sort of like, to what degree does she actually understand what plagiarism means? And also like, to what degree has she normalized it to herself or naturalized it to herself given the background that she has, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I very much identified with that as somebody who comes from a culture where the concept of individual ownership is much less important, right? Mm. And so it took me a really long time to like actually like fully understand what plagiarism is and why Americans consider it important. Um, mm. And one of the fortunate things about me is it's often easier for me to write things on my own actually than to lift things from sources, right? But I could have made those types of mistakes you know, just like early in my writing learning. And so I don't know. So it was just like one of those situations where, you know, like where eventually like a number of writers came out to this woman's defense and said, look, being a writer in an industry that isn't made for you is extremely difficult. You're under an incredible amount of pressure. You have no frame of reference for what's happening, you know, like you have no cultural understanding, you know, like nobody in your circle has published a book, right? I mean, maybe in your, in your professional circle, but not in your familial and intimate circle. And I think all of that gets completely flattened in favor of the Twitter one-off. It, it's not lost on me that ever since I've become more thoughtful on Twitter. I also don't grow my following nearly mm -hmm. to the same extent as I did when I was like writing on, you know, like high profile trans issues and can write like super short, pithy things mm -hmm. to say about them. That's when, you know, like tweets of mine went viral. Thankfully, I don't really care. I think probably like publisher PR people. <laughs> at any publisher that would want to publish my book <laughs> would care, unfortunately, but I'm, but I'm trying to <laughs> those voices at bay. <laughs> I mean, engaging in all of that culture, right, does grow your following. And so there are a lot of people who engage in it for that reason, um, which, you know, is understandable for some things and for some people, depending on what their goals is, but it's... Uh, it's not great. The algorithm's yeah, bad. And, and it does make me wonder, like, when these pileups happen, right, like, how many of those people who are participating in the pileup are hoping for that viral tweet that will move them from just any other internet commentator to somebody who has influence, right? Because certainly I see issues you know, boiling up and I want to say something about them and I want to have, you know, like that tweet that's going to be read by thousands of people, um, except that I remember that I've had those tweets and inevitably there is the backlash. <laughs> 
You know, this this conversation, I'm thinking about the really like edgelordy Twitter accounts that like sometimes like where where people are like really flirting with becoming the main character. Mm -hmm. Um, And while a lot of those accounts maybe say things that I disagree with, there's something about doing that to grow your following as opposed to like dunking on people that I respect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like Twitter is just a bad place. (laughs) <laughs> and yet and yet it's where we live i mean it's so funny how we just keep creating ecosystems that are not great for our mental health <laughs> and we just need to develop workarounds for them and i think you know like for me i honestly don't know how people are able to engage with a platform day in and day out, because most of what I do on Twitter is, you know, just look at my stuff and go away, right? Like I don't, um, mm-hmm. but the thing is, I have the privilege of doing that, right? Like I have enough of a following that, you know, like a certain section, you know, like nerdy trans cross-section of people are interested in hearing what I say. So I get enough you know, kind of like stimulation from the platform and kind of social interaction from the platform just from my my specific interactions with specific people. And I imagine that's not true for a lot of people, you know, like who have smaller followings. But then, you know, like people like Caitlin have gargantuan followings and I don't know, you know, I don't know what you do. I would be very uh, intimidated. I- <laughs> I honestly, I try to be funny. <laughs> like, um, like I, I occasionally get very angry, and I will do angry tweeting, and that's the stuff that usually goes viral. But I, I've mostly been trying to tell jokes or like tweet about Overwatch um, lately. But uh, I mean, I really resonated with with some of the things that you said because I too have toned down the way I use. Twitter, although that might come as a surprise to people because I'm still kind of a dickhead sometimes. Um, <laughs> like, I used to be more like fire and brimstone with a lot of this stuff where it's like, oh my God, you said the wrong pronoun because you didn't check somebody's profile. You're like the worst person ever, right? And I used to get lots of engagement off of that. And stuff like that, it's like, I give more benefit of the doubt these days. Um, and I really work hard not to if I don't have anything constructive to contribute or I don't think what I have to say is constructive to the conversation I just won't say it like a shocker there are trans people on Twitter who I don't like um, and I just don't, never say anything <laughs> like I don't want to add to pylons of other people even when I disagree with them unless it like clearly crosses a line I think one of the interesting things about doing this show is trying to figure out where the line is to say something. Yep. Um, Especially with the platform that I have. So it's really, it's really interesting. But yeah, I definitely can relate to how you said you've been pulling back a little bit on on how you use Twitter. Yeah, because it requires nuance. It requires thought, right? Like it requires... Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that's part of what happens, right? Like you're incentivized to be angry because when you're angry, your follower count increases and people give you more goodies, um, whether material or cultural. I mean, at least for me, like I had to take a step back and, and tell myself, you know, like, what am I contributing to the world? I also just feel like we're at a point as trans people when, you know, like pretty much all of these arguments are distracting us from doing wonderful things. Like we, you know, like don't need to be the reactors anymore. Like we are creating amazing culture you know, like, why do we need to justify ourselves? You know, obviously, there are still a huge number of issues that trans people are facing. 
ranging from healthcare for trans kids to, you know, like trans people in sports, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but I do think that we need to ask ourselves, like, what is the best use of our energy? Um, what Amen. are the best ways that we can actually push forward our goals, right? You know, like for me, I think that's part of my personal movement towards writing fiction is realizing that actually I've explored trans politics to a degree that I am at least, you know, satisfied with right now. But what I haven't really explored is all of these issues that are beyond politics, right? Like mm-hmm. the, that are, for instance, like around the intimate lives of trans people, for one thing. And also like for the other, just like an opportunity to make things outside of reacting to cis people, you know, like to just sort of... <laughs> Amen. Right? Like, to just sort of, like, build things and write stories that don't center on reacting to what cis people think of us. Caitlin, are you ready for some out-of-context cancellation? Absolutely. I need to, like, get some of my frustration out, so I'm <laughs> I'm excited about this. Um, okay, first, we're going to cancel Chick-fil-A. Always a good one. Yeah, always pretty standard at this point. <laughs> yeah, not sure why, but always a good idea. Um, <laughs> wildfires and hazardous air quality. Yes, especially if they're caused by gender reveal parties. <laughs> oh, my God. Caitlin. <laughs> Did you Caitlin. see the thing in Brazil? Where this uh, couple like contaminated an entire village's water supply because they dyed the like local waterfall blue for their gender reveal. That's horrifying. <laughs> That's horrifying. The sis must be stopped. Oh my god! Someone I know recently had a gender reveal party, and I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> anyway, not gonna, gonna, gonna move on. Um, working on the weekend. Yeah, fuck that shit. Yeah, I don't do that anymore. Although I might I might go back to it if I get a part-time job. <laughs> I mean, that's real. Ooh, um, some like good bops with no lyrics that you can't Google. You can't like oh, find yeah. a bop again. Isn't that like when you just hear a song that you're like, yes, I love yeah. this bop. And then you can't find it. So frustrating. You know what else is frustrating is when hmm. like, you like hear a song that has like a good beat or riff. And um, and then you find out that it was like taken from a song in the 70s. <laughs> I don't know. It annoys me. <laughs> it's like the original people. <laughs> This next one was uh, very on brand for a couple of weeks ago, but we're canceling monarchies. Overdue. Overdue. I actually got dogpiled on Twitter because <laughs> I said uh, my family heritage was Irish and we're supposed to hate the queen and British people got really upset with me. I mean, I think we can all get over it and just like chill, chill the fuck out. Um <laughs> Gonna cancel some coffee makers that malfunction. Oh my god. Yeah, I've I've had I've gone through that a few times recently. <laughs> yeah, just just need some good coffee in the morning. Need to not have to worry about it. <laughs> we are finally canceling gatekeeping. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we we're getting rid of it. No more gatekeeping in the queer community. It's never gonna happen ever again. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, a listener wanted us to cancel their neighbor for making them have to move within a week. I don't know the context for this, but that sounds like it sucks. Yeah, I don't know the context either, but it sounds awful. Yeah. Okay, we need to get rid of sinus headaches. Yes, please. And how about while we're at it, we get rid of BMI? Mm hmm. Long overdue, long overdue. <laughs> um, and also clothes not being made to accommodate fat bodies. I agree with that one. Somebody wants to cancel grapefruit. I don't know why. Um, actually, I do. The reason was that it doesn't live up to its name. Oh, it's neither a grape nor a fruit. 
I think it is a fruit. I think grapefruit's a fruit. I'm pretty sure. Look, I've got a lot of big himbo energy, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this one. You know what else is a fruit? Me. I was going to say me, but yeah, you also. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Someone also wanted to cancel St. John's wart. Uh, which seems fine unless you use it and it's helpful for you. It seems random, but okay, we're doing this. I mean, look, if I don't have a real objection, right? Like, <laughs> right. we don't have a real objection. We got to cancel it. Now, Now, a listener wanted us to cancel their cat for coating himself in concrete dust and then getting in the, the listener's bed. Oh, no. And I understand that that's frustrating, but the cancel daddy does not cancel cats and so i'm gonna cancel the listener for trying to cancel that little adorable goon you know what i support the cat cancellation no no cats will be canceled by the cancel daddy sometimes the cats are just little shits and they gotta be canceled every once in a while no they're adorable and they need to be loved no they need to be loved Okay, divided. divided. Okay, but as, okay. as a cancel daddy, I'm going to cancel you for trying to cancel the cat now. You know what? Here's something we can all agree on. We are canceling libertarians. About time. About time. Um, the concept of public intellectuals. Yeah, like what What the fuck? I mean, technically, I'm a public intellectual. Yeah, but like you don't have this like hoity-toity like... I'm like an influencer and I'm like, you know, like you don't have that. <laughs> it depends that, on like, who, who, who's talking about me. I'm talking about you as a, as a full human, as uh-huh. a real human being, your haters, okay. your haters might frame you like that, but that's not who you are. I see. I see. I see. <laughs> How about we cancel people who are suddenly experts in James Madison's flute collection? That seems very reasonable. That seems really, really reasonable. That was the dumbest controversy, I swear to God. And if you want to cancel something on our show, you can join our Patreon. Yeah, we get all of our out-of-context cancellations through our Discord, and you can join that by becoming a $5 a month uh, patron. You can also get early access to our shows and several other different perks. Uh, you can find out more at patreon.com slash cancelmedaddy. Today's show was made by me, Olive Rash Klein, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. Dee Peterschmidt made our theme song and Eden MW designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the member of our canceler Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all enemies, Matt. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! <laughs>